Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 128, where we will be covering chapters two and three of Dead House Gates by Steven Erickson. Our next book club will cover chapters four and five of Dead House Gates. Our spoiler policy is that I have read this book. Chad has not. Uh, So I'm aware of what is going to happen. He has not. But we are not going to spoil anything past Chapter 3 of Dead House Gates. All other franchises, spoilers are on the table. I am a spotless sacrifice. You are. And we love your predictions at the end. I got a lot of predictions this time. Oh, this was a very dense section for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I don't know how many pages it was because the Kindle doesn't really work that way, but uh, I know it was a lot. Well, let's get into the chapters. In chapter two, Duker continues to watch the tensions rise in the city of Hisar. He attends a prophecy rap battle, a very tense meeting with Malik Rel, Culp the Mage, and one of his officers, and manages to put an escape plan in place for his friend, Hebrick Lighttouch. All in all, nice little Saturday. In the city of Erlatan, Fiddler rescues the granddaughters of an important Tano spirit walker from the Red Swords and gets a magic conch shell in return. Lots of hints are dropped about ascendancy and also reminders that the Raraku used to be an ocean. Did you get that? The Raraku used to be an ocean. Picked up on it, yeah. Callum tracks down an old informant and gets himself a ticket to see the Shaikh. Little does he know he's about to lead the Red Swords right to her. Meanwhile, Ikarium and Mappo get attacked by a bunch of leopards. They're approached by Iskarl Pust and his weird-ass servant. They decide to stay for a while in his Temple of Shadows, while Ikarium works towards some unexplainable goal, and Mappo watches him for signs of homicidal rage. I mean... Only one meanwhile there. That's impressive. <laughs> that's a hell of a chapter summary. It was a hell of a chapter. I know. This so, is a dense chapter. So I just need to put something out there that I am at some point in this podcast or subsequent podcast, going to call the Red Swords the Red Blades. It's going to happen. I apologize in advance. Just know that I I mean Red Swords because I kept writing down Red Blades and then it was just Red Forks, the Red Spoons. Like either there's some kind of, it's a, it's a sharp implement and it's red. We all know who I'm talking about. The Red Sporks. The Red Sporks, yes. Yeah, that's... that's who they are. The Red Sporks. Um, but let's, can we start with the Snapter? Absolutely, we have yeah. a Snapter in the beginning of this section. I'm just going to read it. It's not too long. It says, to this day, it seems easy to ignore the fact that the Aran High Command was rife with treachery, dissension, rivalry, and malice. The assertion that the Aran High Command was ignorant of the undercurrents in the countryside is at best naive, at worst cynical in the extreme. This is taken from the Shaikh Rebellion by Kularan. And then right away when we get into the chapter, we start getting little hints to talk about the brewing rebellion. Absolutely. And we've already seen a hint of the dysfunction in the government officials in this part of the world and what we're told about Pormqual and Malik Rel and how just kind of dysfunctional this bureaucracy is and how almost it would almost 
seems to be like purposefully obtuse the the people in charge yeah, yeah. are well all right having read through this a bunch of times but over you know a period of weeks and then reread it and come back and taken notes there's one thing that still sort of escapes me and i'm sure it's just i'm sure it's explained but i just don't remember yes we have coltane yes who is the fist of the area and he's of the wiccans yes Coltane, sorry. <laughs> That's what my brain does. That's cool. Uh, then we have the Sporks. Yes. I don't really understand their, other than being like Malazan dickbag enforcers, I don't, like who is in charge of them and made the decision that they were going to come in and just kill people randomly? I don't know that we know that at this point. Okay. I, I might, please correct me if I'm wrong. There's a lot of stuff There's going around in the old duder's brain right now but yeah. um but but i'm pretty sure that you've got it right they're malazan dickbag enforcers pretty much okay all right so that's all we know okay i get i was like did i did i miss something that seems really really strange and coltane was up until very recently fighting against the malazans yeah mm-hmm. that that much i got so we start with the duker duker, duker. <laughs> He and I Gordo love- are hanging out <laughs> outside the fish concert. Um, yeah, I love the the opening scene in this chapter, and Duker is staring at this wall that's covered in all of these kind of obscure messages that he doesn't understand, these sort of pictographical messages that um, he knows have meaning for the natives, but that he does not understand, and he's kind of frustrated that nobody in charge has even tried to figure this out and he's staring at in particular this this red ochre handprint which i love that symbolism there so this this blood red hand smacked on the wall um he knows that the uh the year of drajna is mm-hmm. You know, throwing the locals into a tizzy. Um, so we've seen this term drajna mentioned a whole lot. Absolutely. And we will continue. And Duker has been warning the high command. He's been like, hey. And it's been, yeah. It's going down. Nobody's paying attention figures, to him. Yeah. So several points to make about this. Lay them on me. All right. So I was going to bring this up later, but it makes more sense to bring it up here. Kalam later at the end of the chapter when he is negotiating with this dude slash, you know, bullying this dude into giving him information. He says, you know, what about the unhuman handprints? And Duker's looking at this handprint, but it's like during a rainstorm, so it's washing away. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, deliberately mentions that it's sort of obscure, partially right. obscured. Just to, just to put a pin in it, I have no idea if those two things are connected um, what the you know what the unhuman handprint would mean and who if it's not human who it would be from like I you know I mm-hmm. don't don't know that but wanted to put a pin in that to speak to that point as well because I was going to bring this up later when Kalam is having his conversation about what these pictures all mean in the city of Erlatan and mm-hmm. I I thought it was important to note that he was told most of it is gibberish. It's not all, there's not a whole lot of meaning to all of it. It That's just to confuse anyone who would try to figure it out. That's a good segue into the next point that I wanted to make. 
because the Snapter starts off by saying it's foolish to think that the Aaron High Command didn't know what was going on. And then we get to Duker, and he's like, the Aaron High Command has no idea what's going on. <laughs> that means a couple of different things. That means, or it could mean, I guess, uh, it could mean that the author of the Snapter is wrong and looking at it in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could mean that the High Command is just ignoring Duker, like, you know, hearing what he's saying, but not saying anything back. Uh, or it could somehow indicate that they're potentially complicit. Well, Duker mentions in this chapter that his warnings to the High Command are going unheard. So High Command is being told by someone, at least. Now, mm-hmm. are the messages being intercepted? Hard to say at this point. But there's definitely a disconnect. And Aaron, when you look at the map, Aaron is not close. No, it's to significantly far away. Yeah. A lot of the the stuff that's happening here. So I have to say on that note, I have spent more time looking at the maps in this book than than definitely than I did in the other in the in Gardens of the Moon. And really probably more than I have since definitely since Stormlight. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't look at the maps in King Killer this closely. You know, I didn't look at the maps in a lot of other books as closely. But in these last few chapters, I've been really pouring over those maps. I don't know what that means. <laughs> just <laughs> just saying it. Also, secret pictographic language of oblique references that carry portentous weight amongst the natives. Man, I love a good secret pictographic language by an oppressed people. <laughs> Yep. Right. I just love it. Absolutely. It's a hell of a trope. I love it. Reminds me of Yilish Story Knots. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So Duker sneaks into a trader's camp. It's basically a, sort of a, a gambling den. Duker sneaks in. He's trying to pass for one of the locals. And he watches a rite called the Circle of Seasons, where this seer gives a, a pretty important prophecy. So I thought I would read that. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can discuss the seer says, two fountains of raging blood face to face. The blood is the same. The two are the same. And salty waves shall wash the shores of Raraku. The holy desert remembers its past. Because it used to be an ocean. Lest you forget. The, Don't the, forget. It's important. The imagery, you know, the, the imagery of creating an ocean of blood in the desert is very, very thick with this one. This is like one of the most metal. It's like, okay, we're... You're going to have a conflict between two things. I know. Two fountains of blood. (laughs) (laughs) A little on the nose. How much more metal can we get? I mean, I think it's awesome. Um, So Duker doesn't know what to to make of this. Um, So do you have an interpretation of the vision? Well, I, I mean, I have read the book. Do you have an interpretation of the vision? I can see two potential interpretations. Let's hear them. So the first that I thought of is we have two different sort of Malazan factions. We have the Malazan faction from Lacine, and then we have the... Um, there's going to be some sort of rebellion from inside Malaz, potentially even brought about by Fiddler and Kalam. And so the two... The two are the same reference, could be just two different elements of Malaz and the Malazan Empire clashing in rebellion in the Raraku Desert. 
So that's my first sort of interpretation. My second potential interpretation is there's conversation later when we have, I believe it's um, Matt Petrell and Akaria moving across the desert, or it might, I don't remember precisely who it was, but I think that's where it was, where they talk about like two different, I believe it's Soul Taken, who are like brothers, but who hate each other. Mm-hmm. And or talk- Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about like an ascend- ascendancy or a convergence, mm-hmm. rather, um, happening in the desert. So I could also see the two being the same, the same blood, could be a reference to the two brothers sort of leading this convergence in the desert. Or it could be both. Okay. Or it could be neither. I like to hedge my bets. All right. So Duker's being watched in the meeting. <laughs> I mean, how how can you not read this and not see him just look like the boy spits out the vision and then dies and then Duker just goes, whoa. <laughs> I mean, between Duker and Coltane, I, I can't, it's hard for me to picture a lot of these characters seriously. <laughs> but, you know, you just have to push through. Duker heads into a meeting with Malik Rell, Culp the Mage. I have to like say that I have to call them what they are in my head in addition to their name because there are so many names. Yeah, yeah, that's um, fair. So Duker the Historian, Culp the Mage, Malik Rell the Jackass, Coltane, <laughs> an old bolt. And I love the sort of dry humor here. Yeah. And I love we're really starting at this point to get a flavor of the seven cities. So and what really sticks out to me is how old everything is. You know, it talks in this about how ascendance used to be everywhere, how there's sorcery in the sand and the stones and how there's, you know, cities on top of cities. At one point, Duker talks about Hisar living with a spiritual back to the sea. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's so many little really profound nuggets about it just adds a really a richness to this world building all throughout this chapter, many, many places where I sort of highlighted, put a pin in this mm-hmm. but there's but it's just like a it's just like a little piece to the world building that I can really only kind of grab and set aside for later, but I hundred percent agree with you. I love this idea of cities on top of cities. And one of my favorite quotes from this section, maybe from this book, is how he's talking about the cities underneath and how, you know, in his mind, like, like those cities are somehow going on. And he says, Mm -hmm. you know, each city forever wept beneath the streets, forever laughed, shouted, hawked wares. And I just... I love that idea. One of the things that really drew me into the Wheel of Time when I was young, and that was probably my first like big fantasy series, um, was the, the 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 hinting at things that were older. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorite tropes. Well, you can really tell in these novels that Erickson has that anthropological scholarly sort of bent to his writing absolutely um you know and we see it at the end of this chapter as well you know in scenes in the library with matt patrell and acarium another quote that i thought was significant here was duker says talks about how conquerors can overrun a city's walls but they only rule the city's thin surface the skin of the present and one day they'll be brought down by the spirits below and that really sticks out when you think about what we learn in chapter 3 about 
Erlatan. And when we're introduced to a little bit more about that city mm-hmm. and how that is an even older city and is layered on top of what is rumored to be the first of the seven cities, they talk about, you know, that city swallowing things that it didn't like. So I love this. And I'll talk more about that later. But this idea of the past not being gone. I think it's also really critical in this world, you know, that statement, when you when you consider what we learn also a little bit later about the convergence happening in Raraku and sort of why everything is happening there. And so there's, you know, there seems to be this sort of mystical undercurrent, you know, this, this spiritual back to the sea, potentially, you know, that's underpinning all of this, that's tied to events that happened hundreds of thousands of years ago that, frankly, is going to have as much, if not more, bearing on what I suspect, on what happens in this book, than, you know, whether or not the Red Sporks do or don't kill people in the marketplace. Right. So let's talk about the the Council of Coltane. There was a lot of dry humor here. I really loved it. Bolt's a good character. Bolt is a great character. But uh, it turns out that all of these guys have a lot of history with each other from being on opposite sides of the battlefield. Um, so the last time they met, Bolt had lanced Duker, but didn't kill him because he was unarmed. And then in return, Dujek, one arm, stabbed Bolt in the face. And then Bolt's horse bit Dujek's arm and he lost it. Like, But they're all like, hey, remember that time? <laughs> remember that time my horse bit your arm and it got <laughs> so infected? That you lost it. <laughs> yeah. So they're all sitting an, there. Oh, go ahead. What? I mean, you know, Dujek one arm, and we've been, you know, talking about Dujek one arm and what a badass he is this right. whole time. And he lost his arm to a horse bite. A horse bite. I mean, that's still bad. Have you been bitten by a horse? Almost. It's painful. It's, it's terrifying. I don't know if it, <laughs> I didn't lose an arm. But they're all waiting for Coltane's warlock to show up. You know, there's this moment where this truth bomb is dropped because the Wiccans aren't supposed to have warlocks anymore. No. Because Lazine had them all... Outlawed. Killed, so... And these are supposed to be, like, Lazine's allies, and they're showing up with a warlock? Right? I mean, the balls on this guy. (laughs) So, plot twist. Apparently, the Wiccans are able to... Reincarnate, reincarnate their warlocks through the ravens that eat the flesh of the old warlock also consume their souls and carry them back to be reborn. Into children. There's a there's a lot of ways to avoid death in this series. Yeah, possibly more than any other series I've ever read. Yeah, that's true. But I thought it was important to note that yeah, he mentions the Rivi of Genabacus having similar beliefs or practices, which we have seen. Correct. So enter Sormo Enath, a warlock whose balls were so big, (laughs) it took 11 ravens. 11 ravens. To carry it back. 11 (laughs) days. These were were no uh, European swallows carrying these balls. No, carrying coconuts. No, they definitely were not. Not the first, so he walks in the room, 10-year-old child, looking looking like uh, Aaliyah Atreides with her gom jabbar and a little mm-hmm. wisp of red hair showing up. Like, that's a child, you know? <laughs> but this is not the first time we've seen Sormo, I don't think. Okay. But I will admit that my, what I'm about to say here is potentially problematic. So 
when we were in the marketplace and Duker saw the vision, he saw somebody sort of scatting him out and spying on him, but that person was, you know, cloaked in a heavy, heavy, you know, cloak and you couldn't see who it was. And then when he gets to the gates with the guards to go into the meeting, they say, oh, we didn't know you were with the other one. Mm-hmm. And when he's walking through, you know, after he gets past, he sees these muddy moccasin footprints. Uh, and then all of a sudden, sort of from out of the shadows comes Sormo Enath. Mm-hmm. So it all seems to be leading towards you thinking that it was Sormo. Well, actually, we know it was him because he reports on it later. Yes, we do know that he saw the prophecy as yeah, well. Yeah, so what's a little weird about that, though, is that there's a couple of things. Um, one is that this is supposed to be a 10-year-old. That's got to be a big 10-year-old. Like, you would think it would be, he would note that it was a child. Well, you don't know if, if Sormo was the one that he saw in there. You don't. That's true. Or if he was with other people. That's true. The other one, you would think that the guards would know Sormo Enath, but it could also be that he's going out as an illusion or he's not making it clear precisely what he's doing. Anyway, all of that to say, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I love the way that Coltane deals with Malik Rell, the little subtle things like removing all of the chairs from the yeah. room and Malik Rell is obviously like, I'm sorry, if you want to make me uncomfortable, that'll do it. Definitely also remove all the chairs from the room or don't give me a table at least to rest my hands on. And I will yeah. just stand there what? awkwardly shoving my fingers into my stupid half pockets that they give to women. And like, you can't tell everyone at home, but I'm doing the awkward shoulder hunch that you do when your hands won't fit in your pockets all the way. <laughs> it just brings back a very, I just, I really, I'm saying I really felt for Malik Rell, even though he's obviously, you know, supposed to be a douchebag. I felt for him in that moment. People don't know that we always do this podcast standing up. <laughs> it's what encourages us to get to the point. <laughs> I'm sorry. Malik Rell then tries to like assert control of the meeting by invoking Pormqual's name. And Coltane is like, oh, well, thank you for relaying the message. And he just kind of <laughs> treats him like an errand boy. Which that's, I mean, that's bad on Pormqual because that's rather, you know, in an effort to slight Coltane out of just petty pettiness, he sends Malik Rell instead of visiting him himself. And then he orders Malik Rell to like march his soldiers to Aaron to be presented. Right. Like, like that's some stupid shit. Unless the Aaron High Command is trying to take the armed forces away from the area so that perhaps the Red Sporks can dominate and take over. Right. And Coltane turns his back on this request. Bolt is like, bitch, please. We're like, yeah. what are you thinking? Coltane asks Duker how well Pormqual governs. And uh, Duker says, as far as I can tell, not at all. <laughs> um, they also, they note that Malik Rell's predecessors were all the emperor's men who were mysteriously killed. Yeah, this is the part that I thought was much more interesting. So what stuck out to you the most in this Exchange, you know, between Bolton, Coltane, and Duker. As you so eloquently put earlier, this seems like a world where there's so many ways to not die or come back from death or what have you. Plus, we just have the, 
the old fantasy axiom of if you didn't see the body, mm-hmm. they aren't dead. And then, you know, we you have this line, which I think I might have audibly went, oh, when I read this, you know, and it, it says, uh, you assumed they were murdered at Lacine's command, Bolt said. But imagine a circumstance where the Empress' most able commander simply disappeared, leaving her isolated and desperate for able people. You know, and mm-hmm. what if it's not that they were all killed by Lacine? What if it's that they read the tea leaves and said, we're going to go disappear for a while and foment rebellion in other ways? Or some enemy of hers is behind there disappearance somehow oh yeah or yeah the other side yeah how about you know as an attempt to weaken her because i don't know it's kind of hard to you get so little insight into lacine's thinking Mm -hmm. that it's hard to know whether she is like geniusly holding all this together or if she's coming from a huge position of strength and slowly falling apart. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's difficult to tell. Well, Coltane really gives us a, kind of flips the perspective on the, the murder of Kellen Vedden Dancer, which Lizine definitely did. But they question whether it was really a bad thing. And I believe uh, Coltane says, you know, the Emperor and Dancer were able conquerors, but were they able rulers? And basically, is it really a bad thing for the Empire that they are gone? Now, we know that Kelenved was very um, good at convincing people to fight for him. So a lot of people, you know, so far we've ha- kind of had them painted as the good guys. So I think it's neat to see some varying perspectives come up this early in the series. It it is. So one thing I, you know, from a historical note, I think anybody who studied any sort of ancient history sees this happen over and over and over again in our own human history. The idea that the able conqueror is often not the best ruler in Mm -hmm. peacetime, just because you can, you know, lead an army into the into the field and conquer territories doesn't mean you have any idea of how to balance the budget and, Mm and keep the economy going and uh, and maintain peace. So that's certainly, you know, something from our own experience. But I, I guess the other side to it is that in this world, does Lacine seem like she's good at ruling? I mean. <laughs> B- I mean, based on what no, we've but <laughs> seen. We don't know. It doesn't. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm yeah, with you. You know, like, like, okay, I hear your point, Coltane, but. It's not looking like she was really better, you know, and we we also have instances of like, I feel like it was, um, I don't I think it was Kalam, I think it was Quick Ben, you know, lamenting all oh, the days, I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody lamenting, you know, the loss of the days when the old emperor was around because he would actually like keep things mm-hmm. together and keep people from being able to you know, keep rebellions from happening and and seem to maintain, relative to Lacine, Mm -hmm. a better level of peace. Now, don't know the truth of any of that, but but just interesting to note that, you know, people, members of the Bridge Burners have been like, ugh, if the Emperor was around, we wouldn't have any of this bullshit. Right. Coltane is here saying, effectively saying the opposite, when he's coming from a position where very recently he was the enemy of Lacine. So that's a strange 
It, it is, but I think what we're getting from Steven Erickson over and over is that this is not a cut and dry fantasy world. Yeah. There's not going to be a good guy and a bad guy here. Uh, it's about a much more complex message than that. So then Coltane, you know, wants to talk to Duker and he says, you will be attached to my staff. <laughs> Whoa. I definitely also wrote that down. Whoa, guy. (laughs) I mean, I'll be on the payroll, but (laughs) I don't want to be attached to it. Man, I want an entourage. I just wanted to insert an unnecessary dick joke. I'm glad you did. That's what I do. If we don't have an unnecessary (laughs) dick joke on the podcast. Is it even an episode? It's not. I'm sure there's been 128 unnecessary dick jokes I'm sure. in this podcast. At least. It's not very equitable of us. We need some more unnecessary vagina jokes. Start vagina is never that. unnecessary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I don't even know what that means, but it was just it was it was over the plate and I had to take it. Okay. Uh, uh. So now we have the meeting after the meeting where Duker says to Culp, uh, what do you think of this young warlock? Sorry, I'm all up in Sormo Enath's Yeah, let's talk staff. about Sormo Enath. <laughs> Get on it. I mean, I don't know what it is about me, but like uber powerful, scary wizard children. It's your favorite. It's my fave. It's your what favorite. Is, what is it about? I don't know. What do you think of this young warlock? Young, the cadre mage scowled. That boy has the aura of an ancient man and goes on to explain how, I don't want to read the entire section, but goes mm-hmm. on to explain how like he could he could tell that everything they said in that room was 100% true, um, even though in the meeting he was like, that's all bullshit, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Duker says, why'd you contradict him? Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want him to know that I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I want to maintain some level of mystery here, all right? Uh-huh. So, and then um, it's right after this that uh, that Duker says to Culp, I need to ask you a favor. And this is where he says that he wants to free mm-hmm. Hebrick Light Touch. He doesn't say that, but it's pretty obvious. Right. Dun, dun, dun. Moving on to Erlatan. This is weird, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's that statement... It's not going to be that funny. Sorry. <laughs> Maryland used to have a governor called Bob Ehrlich. And oh, yeah. Every time I write Erlatan, his face just pops into my head and it makes me like things a little bit less. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just a weird thing my brain does sometimes. Um, so in Erlatan, Fiddler buys some girls. I mean, that is a. That is some misinformation. (laughs) (laughs) That is an interesting editorial take. Well, so let me ask you this. This whole scene with Fiddler and the Red Sporks and, you know, the Tano Spirit Walker, did that, for me, really felt like, and in a good way, really felt like a D&D campaign. It's like, okay, you're, you're there and there's chaos and you see a woman who's... And you see the two girls dragged off. What do you do? And before you make the decision, there's a char- a horse charging at you. Make a saving throw against dexterity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I felt like I was in <laughs> oh, like yeah, a yeah. really good D&D. There, D&D. there are a couple of times in this section where I felt that way. Yeah. But yeah, I actually had the same thought. 
And I was like, oh, the girls happen to be granddaughters of this. Of course they do. This Tano spirit walker who's going to give you a. That's the sort of thing. As, magic conch yeah. shell. As a, as a DM, you put in there and you're like, well, are they going to, what are they going to do? Are they going to, are they going to do it? Yeah. Our party would also, just be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go check the next street over. Are they edible? Do they have gold? <laughs> I don't care. This is a, it's also sort of an interesting move that you see to take and sort of instantly make somebody likable. You want to instantly make somebody likable no matter how fucked up everything else they're doing is. And not that Fiddler's like done a bunch of weird fucked up shit, but, mm. but uh, if you got a morally ambiguous character, have them go rescue a couple of street children. Oh, yeah. In, in, instant protagonist. You yeah. get protagonist And how can you points. not like Fiddler? Fiddler's the best. Exactly. He leaves his sword in a puddle. Of course. <laughs> he likes blowing shit up. Fiddler's the uh, the everyman sort of. He's attached to no one's staff. <laughs> so a couple things I noted about Fiddler. First off, when he so he's going off and he's he's disguised as a grawl, which is a, a sort of tribesman yeah. of the area. All we know is that they don't like the Malazans, and that's pretty much all we know. Yeah, they the grawl don't take no shit from anybody. No. And Fiddler does a pretty credible job, at least as far as we can tell, mm-hmm. of imitating a grawl, but he doesn't fool. When when he brings the children home back to there, he doesn't fool anyone there. Well, he so, he does, except for the grandfather. Uh, yes, so he gives the, the his name to to the family, his true name, the name he was born with long ago. So that seems significant. Mm-hmm. The children's grandfather is a Tano spirit walker, so he's not going to fall for your grawl disguise. I mean, disguise. we don't know what a what a spirit walker is. I mean, but it's got to be badass. Yeah. I mean, it's called Spirit Walker. (laughs) Uh, So he gives Fiddler some information in addition to the magic conch shell. He tells him that there's going to be an apocalypse whirlwind, a convergence of ascendant powers drawn by a gate, um, promising something, something having to do with the path of hands and a means to ascendancy for the victor. So, I mean, how, like... Well, I, I you would can't like keep your Sharknado. <laughs> I have an apocalypse whirlwind over here. That's like, true. Yeah, the apocalypse whirlwind is, is pretty it's badass. Kick your Sharknado's ass. <laughs> I would just like to quote what the what the uh, Spirit Walker says. Oh, sweet, yeah. Filler asks, "What will draw them?" Tano says, "A gate, the prophecy of the path of the hands, soul taken and devers." however you say that, a gate promising something. I mean, he he literally says, I don't know, something. <laughs> and I'm, I'm reading this and I'm like, really? Like, that's, that's all you got? And then, like two sentences later, as if in way of apology, it says, I have no answers for your questions. Indeed, I do not even think the soul taken and deivers are fully aware of what they seek. Like salmon returning to the waters where they were born, they act upon instinct, a visceral yearning, and a promise only sensed. Based on other things we start seeing later, that seems to be the closest thing to the truth Mm -hmm. that we're going to get. And it definitely seems legitimate based on some of the language that you know, some of the soul taken and things that we run into use, that seems like a really apt description. Yes, everybody is based, it seems like 
it's kind of like a race for the infinity stone out there as far as we can tell at this point it's the um it's the weirdest cannonball run ever <laughs> so so many hints being dropped about ascendancy in this chapter and and so far in this book you know when we're introduced to the ascendance we we meet ones who are already kind of in power and mm-hmm. we learn pretty quickly that ascendants are actually really powerful individuals who are able to just basically achieve a level of like low godhood but that their greatest weakness is being killed by mortals so i just i thought this this idea this hint being dropped that the bridge burners could ascend because yeah. we find that the Tano Spirit Walker, they have power in their songs. And basically, if they write a song about you, it can, you know, lead you on that path towards becoming an ascendant. So he asks, could an entire regiment be ascended? Mm-hmm. Um, now, Fiddler declines his kind offer to, like, you know, basically invade his mind and all of his memories. But it's a really kind of compelling and interesting question. Could the bridge burners ascend? And if so, like... I just love the idea of that because we have the, the bridge burners who are especially Paran, who is one of them who hate the ascendants. Could they become ascendants? And then, uh, you know, their greatest downfall will be the people who were just like them in their previous stage of life. Just a very kind of weird circular irony. I don't know. Yeah, I noted that as well. And I had kind of a long, a long section, you know, in here sort of talking about that same sort of question and at first, I was really sort of puzzled by why Fiddler just sort of was like, like he acknowledged how incredibly powerful that could be. And then he just kind of walked on and just walked away from it. Mm-hmm. And I was really sort of puzzled by that. You know, why Why would you, particularly when you have like a mission that you're trying to accomplish and a powerful, you know, empress that you're trying to kill and rights you're trying to wrong, why would you walk away from that? And it seems like the Tano Spirit Walker's ability, so far, what little bit we know, this character seems to be very much a white hat kind of character. I think it's important to note that it's Fiddler who gets to make this choice for all the bridge burners. Mm, that's a good point. This wasn't a, a choice brought before. It wasn't brought before Quick Ben. It wasn't brought before Catwoman. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't brought before any of them, but it was Fiddler who who had to make this choice and ultimately decide. So, well, and in part, it's, it seems like he declines because the implications that if Kimlock knew all of his secrets, it would be dangerous for him. Yeah. That's what he says. And I'm not entirely sure how much I buy that. I think it has more to do with something that happens later with Mapotrell and. Uh, Akarium, where we just see that, like, and just kind of reminded me that, like, every time we see people who are ascendant, they have just a touch of absolute batshit insanity mm-hmm. behind their eyes. Yeah. And I think it's either a, a sort of fear or wisdom, perhaps, of that batshit insanity of, like, seeing things you're not supposed to see, knowing things you're not supposed to know. That he's like, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll just pass. I think I'd rather just live a human life and die. Well, and that's a really um, prevalent theme in this book is the idea of stepping back and walking away from power. 
And, you know, we talked a lot about that with Krupp in the previous book. And in this book, it's kind of we see that through Ikarium, you know, being so powerful. And we'll, we'll talk more about him later, but but wishing that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And this is just another instance of, of that, that theme being addressed. But if I was Fiddler and I had read the chapter with um, Peron and when he goes to Hood mm-hmm. and sees what happens behind Hood's gates. Mm hmm. I would do everything I could not to die. I would do. I would absolutely take that. Take that offer. Anything to avoid that fate. That seems like a good incentive not to want to die. So we find out also that Kimlock's last guest was actually Dujek One Arm when Kimlock surrendered his city. I mean, in 11 years, nobody came and asked to borrow a cup of sugar? Nobody. Nobody? You don't borrow a cup of sugar from a Tano spirit walker. He's going to touch you and know all your memories. <laughs> but For this really... cup of sugar, <laughs> will, will you give me all-seeing, all all-knowing permanent life? <laughs> um, this, But I... This conversation was really compelling to me, and it really speaks to the theme of wartime morality, because... Fiddler is obviously, like you said, he's our he's our good guy. He's our protagonist. He rescued two girls from a from a pimp, you know. Hmm. The captain here and Kimlock both acknowledge that the bridge burners were honorable men fighting a dishonorable war. But mm-hmm. Fiddler still has this conflict where he's loyal to the Empire. Or at least he's loyal to the Empire that was when Kellenved and Dancer were ruling it. And so he kind of is sticks up for the the Empire and is like, you know, when so they get into this talk about how um well kimlock surrendered because he, he was never going to win and his captain um turco says well he could have won but he values life unlike some people you know <laughs> and uh, fiddler gets a little defensive but then the the slaughter at Aran by the talani mas gets brought up it's just it's just for me watching fiddlers struggling with this idea of you know he came into fighting for the empire when it was one thing, and now he's not sure why he's still fighting for it or loyal to yeah. it, especially when you watch his relationship with Callum start to deteriorate as they kind of have very different views about this. Um, yeah. It gives me feels. <laughs> well, and also, I, I guess you have to think, you know, if you've been living your life sort of fighting on this, fighting for something or on this side or on this team, even if you even if you question but you're forced into a situation where you don't really have a choice mm-hmm. you're going to have to find a way to sort of rationalize that in your brain yeah and when you've lived that for 15 years it's hard to back away from it even if you know intellectually mm-hmm. that it's wrong yeah so Fiddler goes back, rejoins with the gang a little bit, kind of tells them what's going on. He does not tell Callum that he saw Kimlock because apparently there's no. some history there. Or about the shell that he received, this, you know, theoretically powerful artifact. Yes. Crocus and Absalar are so done with this town. It makes me think about 1994, Colorado. My brother and I got dragged out there to visit our family. So we were 16, 14, I don't remember. We were there around that age, pre-internet, mm-hmm. small house. 
we just we have, we both have very vivid memories of being like bored out of our minds. And so that's what we always say to each other when we see kids being bored and kind of being brats about it is yeah. 1994 Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, like I just remember making these charts of all of our wheel of time theories and then we ran out of those and we made a list of stuff that sucked. And thus and it was a like podcast was born. 12. Little did you know. And our list of things that sucked like was like 20 pages long and involved <laughs> everything and everyone around us. Very teenage. So I, I just, I get that. I see that a lot in our daily life. But when Crocus and Absalar come onto the scene here, I was like getting major Colorado 1994 vibes Petulant from them. They yeah. are just done. And There's Crocus nothing is- nothing to do here. <laughs> he's like, and there's rats and it's hot. And we're all going to get the plague and it'll be your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so Callum goes off to meet with Mibra, who is one of his informants. He's a spy. He is after the signs that he needs to pass safely through the Odan. And he's given that. He's also manages to get a hold of a, a book that just conveniently falls out of his conveniently. informant's robes. The Holy Book of Raraku is like, oh, no, not my holy book. Yeah. Please yeah. don't. Please don't, don't take, take my holy book of Raraku. <laughs> Whatever would I do if you took it and <laughs> walked into the desert so I didn't have to do it? And uh, I can these follow you. Red sporks right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right where we need to go. So yes, uh Callum thinks, oh, it's just lucky I found this holy book of Raraku. And uh turns out he's being played all along. Mibra is working for the Red Swords. They want to kill the Shaikh. Well, and they're we, going to follow Callum right to her. But then we have that whole exchange earlier that earlier that we mentioned where you know, he's met, he's asking, what are the symbols? The symbols have changed, you know, and uh, the dude's like, no, it's all just, it's amidst the cloud of locusts, there is but one, how to best keep the red, so how to best keep the uh, sporks blind. But then uh, the sporks were sitting in the room in the shadows, apparently behind him the whole time. Yeah, he's, wor he's working for them. And Kalam, who seems to be, in so many ways, has been, you know, able to kind of, you know, work through these worlds of power. He's this powerful assassin. He's, you know, he's done all these amazing things. Uh, but he's also typically a part of a team with, you know, with Quick Ben and other people who can kind of watch his back. And, you know, he he just walks right in, or seems anyway, to walk right into this. Now, we could go to the next chapter, and he could be like, yeah, I knew that guy was fooling me all along. But at least from, from what it looks like now, he just completely falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. Mm -hmm. So to the Raraku Desert. Yes, indeed. Akariam and Mapo get fucked up by a bunch of leopards. And then there's like there's a, a bear. bear. But the bear turns out to be, say it again. Masambra? Masambra. 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 It's very French sounding and him being... You know, Erickson being Canadian, that seems like it's probably the French style of pronunciation. Probably. But it says, uh, Mesram stood Mesambra. no... Mesambra. Yes. Stood no more than five feet in height. He was almost hairless and thin to the point of emaciation. Narrow tooth, 
uh, excuse me, narrow-faced and shovel-toothed smoking cigarettes constantly. So French. See, it, it is French. <laughs> but I was like, shovel-toothed. Man, that's that's an interesting one. I've never heard that. And then like a sentence later, Massambre says, Mapotrel, my nose told me it was you. Oh, and I'm like, these two motherfuckers are just roasting each other in the open desert. <laughs> But this is where, uh, the, you know, they mentioned that, like, there was insanity behind his eyes. They tell him, hey, you know, they, they're like, hey, there are, there are other soul taken. Like, you're, I think, I don't know if it was him or somebody else. Like, your brother or somebody's brother is out there or the two brothers are out there. Watch your back. Like, they're hinting to all this sort of, like, insider soul taken history that's going to blow up in a very... Um, you know, in a very daytime TV talk show, somebody's going to hit somebody with a steel chair sort of sort of uh, talk that I thought was interesting. And then it gets strange. Then it gets strange. Uh, when Iskarl Pust shows up on the back of a donkey that is not a donkey. Yes, Iskarl Pust is uh, kind of the, the Krupp figure that we've met in the, so far in this book. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I can see it. Just kind of enigmatic and entertaining, but whereas Krupp was a kindly, funny cherub, Ascarl Poost is just like a kind of greasy, uh, disturbing figure he, with a weird servant. He reminds me a little bit of the wizard from Con Conan the Barbarian. Yes, I can definitely see that. I get a little bit of that vibe. So the servant is is shows up in the form of a donkey. Carl Pust has a little poem about him, I guess, where he talks about a life given for a life taken is the phrase that he always mentions around the servant. Yeah, that's not ominous. Yeah, he's a caring man with salty hands. That's gross. Uh, yeah. One wrinkled, one pink. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's very weird. And we find We're out in the that land his, of high strangeness here. His servant is a gift from Amanas. Yeah, I noted that too. I'm like, that's again not making me feel better. What I notice in every single chapter that Akarium and Mapo are in is the there's always emphasis on how powerful Akarium is. Yeah. They're attacked by 12 leopards. Mapo is more worried about what Akarium is gonna do if he if he is allowed to engage in too much violence. You know, the um, Bruce Banner of the uh, duo. Yeah, Masambra, who's like this very deadly soul taken, is like, "Oh, hey, Karium, I, I, you know, didn't know it was you. I, I, I smelled mean, he, something, but like, I, I, I he really... literally said I didn't know. He did the I didn't know it was you. He's like, are we, are we good? We're okay. <laughs> I mean, the fact that uh, Akarium has arrows with warrens in them that they leave behind as like warnings, like. Hey, don't attack us. We'll fuck your shit up if we have to, but we don't want to, you know? And mm -hmm. that's where we, you know, we just really see this, this theme of like people who are very powerful, but who choose not to use it to dominate and conquer others. Um, well, and this is also where we, I mean, unless I missed it earlier, this is also where we find out that Akarium has these sort of fits of memory loss. Yes. That Mappo doesn't want him to remember. Yes, Akarium can't remember the fight with the leopards at all. Mm -hmm. And Mappo encourages 
him to not remember to not that. remember it. Yeah, because he says, "Oh, I didn't. You know, I, I I made use of some of your weapons. I didn't think it worthy of mentioning." And I'm like, "Well, that is just really weird." And it, and it makes you have to wonder: Is Mapo sort of on Akarium's side? Is he taking advantage of his? lack of memory or is he trying to protect him from a lack of memory or is he trying to protect everybody else from Macarium? like you don't quite know at this point yeah and th- i mean that's certainly the impression that i have gotten by this point in the book is that mappa was worried about what will happen if Akarium unleashes his his real power on people and that he is kind of his job is to kind of follow him around and just make sure shit stays cool like mm-hmm. you know but yeah I, I do i enjoy the um some of the humor that we get in the carl pust is carl pust chapters um he's talking about oh servant has prepared elixirs and all this great medicine since you're wounded and he names off all these substances and mapo says those are poisons <laughs> and he says are they no wonder the pig died the humor in the Temple of Shadows with Ascario Pust is it, it's humor. It, it's it's funny, but there's also such an air, at least to me, there's such an air of like danger kind of underriding everything that mm-hmm. it's also hard to relax because humor is largely based on us telling, you know, in our sort of lizard brain, it's largely mm-hmm. based on us communicating to each other that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. It's like no, that's not danger is essentially why we laugh. Um, and it it's I find this section uh, to be really interesting to me personally because I find Iscario Pust and the whole situation to be really unsettling and it seems like an obvious trap. Mm-hmm. And I think Mapo Trell seems to feel the same way, mm-hmm. but yet it's also laced with all these jokes. But it's different than like, say, when I would read like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies, right? Where like there's also all this like obvious danger, but it's everything in that book is so kind of cartoonishly humorous. It's designed to be a comedy. Right. This book, we're surrounded by death and rape and horrible things. And then you have this one really dark section with a character that I don't trust, but who's also like, like objectively funny right so it's it's a weird place to be and there's there's this poignancy in the relationship between Akarium and mapo that makes you care about them and care what happened to them Mm -hmm. you know i know when Akarium brings up to mapo that oh hey my sword is got blood in it like and you're wounded what what happened and and uh and Mapo like lies and says, yeah. "Oh no, I just no, there was a problem. I took care of it." And no big deal. And Akarium says, "You would tell me otherwise." And Mapo says, "Why would I not?" You know, it just there's so much caring between the two characters, even though they they and, and what I, I guess I'm I'm not at the stage where I'm fully convinced that it's caring and not potentially some sort of weird subterfuge mm-hmm. that he isn't potentially playing him for a fool or d- deliberately you know, hiding him or steering him the wrong direction. I haven't fully come onto that side yet. Based on your reaction, I'm led to believe that that fear is unfounded and unnecessary. But well, and I'm, I'm not telling sure you where it, I am. At that this it stage. couldn't be both. Yeah, I guess that's true. But for me, in Map, having Mapo's 
point of view, he's to me, he really seems to be looking out for Akarium and afraid of him, but also concerned about him. Yeah, I do get a sense that he has genuine concern and concern for Akarium. Like, like, I don't get the sense that, like, you know, he's there simply to play him for a fool or trick him or betray him. Um, that he genuinely wants, you know, the best for him. But I also don't know that his allegiance isn't somehow divided in some other way. I, mm-hmm. I just don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that stuck out to me was how often in Erickson's writing, now Mappo does like straight up lie to Akarium, but more often he allows him to draw the wrong conclusions and how often characters in these books do that. Yeah. They're able to mislead another character by not even outright lying, but by kind of allowing them to um, come to the wrong conclusion about something. It's just such beautiful storytelling. I love that. I love that in, in these books and in Erickson's writing and in, in other people's writing mm-hmm. as well. It was one of the things I, I noted that I really liked about uh, George R. R. Martin's writing mm-hmm. early on is one of the first things I noticed is that you would have characters for very logical reasons just come to the entirely wrong conclusion mm-hmm. and how bad everything would be because of that. Yep. So, um, so yeah, I absolutely love that. In chapter three, Phyllis and Heberich and Balden have settled into the Atotoral slave mine. It's as awful as you might imagine. Despite their best intentions, relationships between the three are crumbling as the traumatic stress they are enduring eats away at them. In Hissar, Duker, Culp, and Coltane are barely able to circumvent a massacre of the population by the Red Swords. Culp lets Duker know that the message was sent to Heberich. Coltane continues to train the 7th Army with brutal efficiency. In Erlatan, Fiddler, Crocus, and Absalar set out disguised as pilgrims, while Callum leaves separately, trailed by Red Sword assassins. In the Temple of Shadow, Mappo recovers from his wounds and finds Akarium in the kitchen slash library, reading a book in a language he shouldn't be able to remember. Bum, bum, bum. So, chapter three, trigger warning. Yes, indeed. <sighs> it is horrible. I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this, you've, re- you've read the book, so it's, right. not, it's not like we aren't you know, telling you something or that we are telling you something you don't know. But it starts with this really brutal insight into Felison's life in a prison camp. Mm-hmm. One of the things about fantasy I find really compelling is sort of where it chooses to leave sort of the brutal reality of humankind and the life that we live and war and violence, where it chooses to leave that on mm-hmm. the table and put it right in your face. Yeah. And where it chooses to depart into the realm of fantasy. Because yep. what a lot of people will say and um you know this is a, this is the George R R Martin argument is this is very much a reflection of of ourselves and the, and you know put in different situations and seeing how we would behave um and the reality is is that in a situation like this you would have sexual violence. Mm-hmm. You you just would. And to ignore it is to ignore humanity. Right. Um, And then other people make the argument that this is a fantasy world Mm -hmm. and you don't have to have that bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's a fantasy. Right. You don't, you know, change the dynamics. Right. Um, 
and I'm not taking a side on that particular argument here, um, but I I think it's always it's always fun for me to sort of see where the individual authors draw that line. Well, I thought on that note, the fact that it's mentioned that Felicin is abused by both men and women. Mm-hmm. Because it's more a statement of power. Yes. It's the power dynamics. Yeah. That's that's going on it as much as it is a sexual thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's really positive that Erickson emphasizes multiple times Felicin's agency in this situation. Mm-hmm. That much of this is her choosing to ride out the power dynamics this way. She's, mm-hmm. you know, it's um, not that she would have, uh, not that she would be able to put up a huge amount of resistance if if she chose not to. Mm-hmm. But but he emphasizes a lot, sort of her agency in the situation that she's choosing, in her mind at least to sort of make an exchange and use her sexuality to better her friend's situation. So he's sort of trying to emphasize that. But it's also really hard to listen to all of that, especially when he's, we find out that she's 16. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, in our minds, and I, you know, and I don't think this the reality changes because we're in Malaz, is still a child. Yeah. So this is a tough read. It's very difficult, and and Felicin is a controversial character mm-hmm. as far as you know what people think about her. To me, um, this is this is a very difficult but but fair exploration of trauma. Mm-hmm. And what trauma does to a person, and I, we've talked about this many, many times on the podcast. But I, you know, I feel like too often in in fantasy novels, and sometimes you're right; it is just fantasy. We don't always want to read grim, dark, mm-hmm. depressing books. But the idea that in fantasy novels, trauma is so often used as a character motivation, but it's not explored in a way that's realistic or fair. You know, uh, oh, my parents are brutally murdered and I'm going to just trot off on mm-hmm. and become a hero, you know, yeah. without really kind of showing the, the gritty, the feelings and the and then not everybody rises above trauma in the next chapter and yeah, just yeah. becomes a white knight. Like people flounder because of trauma. And well, it's one of the things that we love so much about the Kingkiller Chronicle mm-hmm. yeah. and about that story, because it you you sit in that trauma for a good long while. Yeah. And I really don't know how long we're going to sit in Felison's trauma, but we're in it now. Yeah, and and we we you know, for me this was such a a great portrayal of a trauma response and that Felison comes back to her friends and they they've obviously been together for some time and we we saw them in the prologue basically getting them getting each other alive to the boat, but they've been together, they've kind of banded as a little uh, family unit. Uh, we see her wanting to, like you said, improve her friends' lives and and help them uh, survive this terrible situation. But she 
still comes across in a way that pushes them away. Yeah. And uh, Hebrick as well, you know, is obviously grateful to be alive because of what she's doing, but he's so racked with guilt yeah. mm-hmm. of, of what's happening to her and obviously has something going on with Baldwin that they're afraid to tell her about. Mm-hmm. You know, so even though they're there, they're trying to care for each other, There's, there's their responses are not able to be what they want them to be. No. Also, size matters. <laughs> yes, apparently. I mean, you've, you've always... Enough to mention several times. You've asked the question on Reddit. I know you have. <laughs> yes, of course it matters. That's Of course it does, dummy. <laughs> Just maybe not in the way you think it does. So there is a, an interaction that Fellison has with one of the guards that I thought was important to note. They're walking through, and Pella, the guard... Kind of starts having a conversation. Felicin is with Beneth, who is the, you know, the king of the of the mines, basically. And she is sleeping with him in order to get favors for her friends. Pella says to her in a very intense, like, you know, eye contacty sort of way, he says, history comforts the dull-witted. That's a quote from Duker's Imperial Campaigns. Do you remember what comes next? And she's like, meh. But it just made mm-hmm. me, it's like, oh, that seems important. And like, maybe Felicin is being given hints that there's something going on. Yeah. You know, Heberick has her watching the, the levels of the lake to see if they've fallen at all. And she knows mm-hmm. that he's he's planning or fantasizing about some kind of escape. You know, to her, she is completely given in to, to hopelessness that that's never going yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah, Well, you know, it, it wasn't until this moment... So I definitely did not, the first time I read through this, I did not pick up on Duker trying to help Hebrick and get and break him out. Mm-hmm. I, did, I just didn't catch it the first time. So it wasn't until I went back and kind of reread it that I noted that. Obviously, I, I caught that Hebrick was up to something, and I figured it was trying to come up with an escape plan. But it never crossed my mind until right now that that guard might have actually been involved like it, it just never crossed my mind until this moment the other thing that she uncovers is that there is a plot to make sure that hebrick dies in the mine yes uh and she's able to you know because of her position sort of with um i forget the beneth yeah beneth Big Beneth, but because of her, you know, relationship with Big Beneth, she's able to, and because she's smart, she's able to work it out mm-hmm. and see what is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, as though being imprisoned in the Otateral Mines isn't horrific enough. Uh-huh. You know, I, I I caught this line also from Hebrick. He says, um, "Those veins we dig, they're like a layer of once melted fat, a deep river of it, sandwiched between layers of limestone." This whole island had to melt to make those veins. Mm-hmm. Whatever sorcery created Otateral proved beyond controlling. Mm-hmm. And we know that the Otateral sword, other than just you know being able to essentially dispel magic, it, it seems like there's more to it than that. But Erickson also has a way of sort of, I guess one of the things I like kind of about his magic systems is that it's almost like a cross between like 
the Sanderson school of like everything is clearly defined mm -hmm. and like you understand it almost like rules in a rule book. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, he keeps adding rules later. And then the more amorphous ones where like you just it's just magic and it just mm -hmm. is, you know, um, I think Erickson has a little bit of both going on. Like mm -hmm. there there's a lot of areas where he clearly explains what's happening, but he also always leaves open this sort of but it's just magic. Right. You know? <laughs> so it's. He's kind of splitting the difference, you know, and I think Otateral is one of those things. Well, and I think what's significant here, too, is the the speculation that Otateral was created by sorcery, you know, in a time where it's sorcery is very, you're not supposed to use it, you can get killed for it, like the idea that sorcerers could have created it, and the fact that it is so very priceless, it's that's a dangerous opinion to have because if creating this mine melted an entire island the idea and i i think hebrick or someone mentions this too we don't want a bunch of sorcerers running around trying to make more ototerol yeah like that would be bad news no this is i mean it's it's a little bit like it's a bad example but it's almost a little bit like a nuclear weapon in that like you you want to control access to that mm -hmm. you want to be the one who has control right Less because of it's a weapon and more because it disarms other people. But nonetheless, yeah, it's not something. It's not something that uh, you want that Malaz wants everyone to have. So I love the interplay between like have how we go from these scenes in the mine where like oh, okay maybe there's you know obviously you know you have Bodin who's going out every night and Hebrick who's watching the lake level and then we go to this scene with Duker where he's being told that a message has been sent mm -hmm. and we're assuming, you know, to, to Heberick, um, mm -hmm. orchestrating this, his escape, hopefully. So the last point I want to make about the Otaro mines is this was the second place where it reminded me of a D and D campaign. We have a line that says a worked out mine where the dead were disposed of each day. Now, first, that's just how dangerous this place is that people die every single day. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know if this means anything, but if I was, you know, if I was, if this was a D&D &D novel, mm -hmm. the place where they just kept stacking the fresh dead bodies mm -hmm. would definitely be where the undead zombie outbreak <laughs> would, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's probably not gonna happen, but I don't know. It seems like if you put a if you put a cave of dead people on the shelf in Act One, <laughs> cave of dead people gotta come out in Act Three. I mean, we've had possessed puppets. Like, I mean, it wouldn't. It would by no means be out of character. <laughs> I don't think that's how you make zombies in this world, though. I don't think so either. I'm just again, if it was a D and D campaign. You would want to stay away. You would want to always keep one <laughs> eye on that cave. <laughs> you might want to go there and burn it up or something. I don't know. Anyway, let's move beyond the Otateral Mines. Indeed. And I love the um, I love the segue from the scenes in the mine where we get some hints that, you know, Bodden going out every night and Heberick watching the levels of the lake to, to this scene where Duker is hearing confirmation from Culp that his message was sent. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of confirmation that there's a, hopefully a rescue in the works. We have a closed loop. 
And so Duker is watch, watching the arrival of the Red Blades to Hissar, which is really the, the tension that's added to this scene because we just watched what the Red Blades did in Erlatan is, is high. The thing where the Red Blades are coming in and sort of attacking underneath of Coltane is still a little puzzling to me. I mean, it's it seems obvious that it's somebody trying to undermine Coltane. Mm-hmm. But it just seems strange to me that that this is being allowed to have that cult that this isn't turning into a much bigger deal in this confrontation. We see that, you know, there is some sort of uh, Coltane is, you know, or, or at least his people are trying to push back and, and stop it. But it, it's just a, a strange thing. I, can't, I haven't quite been able to get my head around yet. What's going on there. Well, I think in particular, it's mentioned that the, the red swords are targeting supporters of Drajna, which is, I imagine why they've come here in this particular marketplace, which mm-hmm. we know has been spawning rumors of apocalypse whirlwinds and yeah, yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Then we have a training montage. And then a training montage. And poor Corporal List. Every time. That was kind of funny. It was it was funny. <laughs> Corporal List. But, but uh, just to note, you know, if you were trying to train an army, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to act in the face of, you know, danger like armies do, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in like urban street to street, house to house kind of fighting, you know, you would want to condition people that like to, to you know, you, you would want a situation where people, you know, in the, in the exercise die right. all the time. You would want right. that, you know, because you would want to condition in these people that I'm going to do it anyway. You know, just through sheer repetition. Didn't you die in every training exercise, every training exercise you ever I mean. had in the army? Every single time. I felt very, I very much felt like Corporal List. <laughs> you were the I, Corporal I List. I was very Corporal List in my time <laughs> in the army. Every single time. No, that's not true. One time, one time I slept through a battle. <laughs> and I didn't die because so I slept through it. that's the secret? It was for me. <laughs> and... <laughs> Now, if that had been real life, I might have survived, but I might so I would have also been stranded behind enemy lines <laughs> <laughs> with all my friends dead. So probably would have died anyway. So I don't have a whole lot of notes for this section, but I did. I really enjoyed the the blending of the Seventh Army and the Wiccan Army. It made me, you know, this section makes me like Coltane as a as a character and as a military leader. Um, and it was it's it was it was a nice emotional note to kind of go out on with uh, the seventh army finally passing one of Coltane's training Yay, exercises we feel good and for the seventh army. earning yeah, a yeah. day of mm-hmm. rest and, and kind of t- different people's coming together sort of thing. But I did literally write training montage and that's my only notes for the yeah. section. So. <laughs> that's all I really had yeah. to. And we, and we go back to Erlatan where Fiddler and Crocus are discussing events. And Bokoral's your uncle. And exactly. Crocus calls Fiddler a glorified ditch digger, and basically, uh, he is not making friends. No, he that's not what he does. He's not. He must be like really adorable, and people are just like, "Oh, Crocus." He's got to be like, uh, I don't know. He's not bringing a lot to the table here in Earl. I'm, I'm not I mean, otherwise. Let's just say, yeah. But he, I, you know who he, re- he reminds me of, and I can't remember. I can can't remember the character's name or the actor's name, but you're gonna know who I'm talking about. He reminds me of like the older teenager in Stranger Things, the one with the um, the one who's the, always like driving around the younger kids. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember the the actor's name off the top of my head, but that's who he reminds me of. 
terrible hair. <laughs> I always pictured him as Timothy Chalamet. I think that's the only actor charismatic enough to like pull pull off Crocus and not have people want to kill him. I do think it's funny that Crocus like last book was like in this whole like uh Absalar's kind of cute, but I don't know, you know, yeah. to this he's <laughs> like you're not going to use her to assassinate the empress, you know. <laughs> Yeah. No, no one has any idea what Absalar thinks. But yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. By the way, her opinion largely no, nobody's absent. even <laughs> discussing anything with yeah, her. But exactly. <laughs> but I definitely think this chapter does not pass the Bechdel. And uh, and Fiddler does tell Crocus to grow up, but also he makes a good point. And he's like, I hadn't actually thought about that. And he's like, do you think Calum has thought about it? He's like, probably. Yeah, yeah. He probably has. Oh, I got the impression that, I got the impression from that exchange that Fiddler knew that that's what was, like he 100% knew that that's what Calum's intention, or an insurance, like it was an active insurance policy. Right, right. He was aware of it. He was simply playing coy and like, I didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. It wasn't my idea. He's like, I just go with the flow, man. Like, <laughs> but but I th- I felt like he f- definitely knew that that's what Kalen mm-hmm. was thinking. So what did you think was up with Moby the familiar? Well, I have a prediction about that. But, you know, it says, if it's truly a familiar, a servant to a sorcerer, but if Mammoth's dead, why is it still here? I'm no mage. And then we wake up like the next morning and it's actually gone. Mm-hmm. So I have a prediction about that. Okay, I can't <laughs> wait to hear it. I, I don't know that it's a good one. I'm just yeah. saying I have a prediction about it. We'll talk about it later. Hmm. So the gang kind of splits splits company. Um, it's it's sad to see Callum and Fiddler disagreeing. Their relationship is getting complicated because they both want to get rid of the Empress, but Fiddler doesn't really want to hurt the Empire. Callum, on the other hand, is like was more recently fighting against the Empire and just yeah. kind of wants to burn the whole thing down. So Fiddler's left wondering, like, where I where am I with this person? Like we were united under Kellenved, we were united under Whiskey Jack. Mm-hmm. Those things are kind of go starting to go away. Am I even on this person's team anymore? I I also get a little bit of a like like two teenage boys who are best friends who have to like go away at the end of the summer together and they're like, I never liked you anyway. Right. I also get a little bit of that vibe. Uh-huh. That's definitely an undercurrent as opposed to the much more obvious questions about where their loyalties lie. Yeah. And then we're back with the Mapo, Acarium, Iscariot, Pust section, which is comedy gold. I mean... I'm- the isolated nuns uh, with the only a library. Nuns with the dirty books to keep to entertain them. Is Carl Post and his spiders? Yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. That that's pretty funny. Um, so Mappo has recovered from his uh, Diver attack, but we we are informed that apparently shapeshifter poison could cause him to go crazy at any moment. Yeah, yeah, not so great. Well, and that, you know, and that's where I, I'm like, is Mappo here because Mappo is the only one who could potentially kill him if that happens? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know. Well, we're starting to get some glimpses and hints at Mappo's memories, mm-hmm. but that has not been revealed yet. Yeah, this, I mean, this section right here that we're in is basically a... It's a section where 
Icarium is like, these books are ridiculous. Why would they, you know, this mm-hmm. this book, the, the physical materials in this book cost more than like half of, of Erlaton, mm-hmm. and yet it's about seed dispersion. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's stupid. Like, this is so frivolous. And then interspersed with, with Mapo Trell, like having these like very you know, like intense flashbacks to mm-hmm. like life-changing moments, you know? Um, so there's this sort of like, it, it's not that what Akarium is saying isn't relevant. It is. I think it's mm-hmm. an important point to note that, you know, he's saying that where these books come from, they're so ancient in the civilization that they come from, must have absolutely dwarfed the empire in terms of its, you know, wealth and technical capabilities, mm-hmm. and yet they're completely gone. So it's not that it's it's not that it's frivolous, but it has that sort of air of frivolity to it. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, the way Akarium sort of talking about it, and then you have Mapotrell in this deep, d- deep like, please God, don't un- don't find the actual answer. Like he's holding, like he's holding a grenade that where he's lost the pin, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but the grenade is just cracking up and making dick jokes the whole time. <laughs> well, and Mappo says, indolence takes many forms, but it comes to every civilization that has outlived its will. Um, first off, like, power quote right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, he talks about how this particular civilization, their downfall came in their, like, you know, inability to separate out pedantic pursuits mm. of knowledge and important pursuits of knowledge and how they just became bogged down. And he compares it to something called Gotho's Folly, mm. which we've had um, snippets of in in the um, epigraphs of that text. And he says, Gotho's curse was being too aware of everything. He was even aware that that was his curse, but it that didn't help didn't him. didn't make it any better. I read that, but I sort of thought, is that... Not the comments about Gotho's folly, but the comments about this supposed ancient society. Is that true? Or is that because that's all you know about them? I mean, we haven't really we been given any reason to think it wouldn't be true. We haven't really given anything else at all about them, however. But, you know, what Akarium says is he talks about how writing replaces memory and language itself changes because of it. And that is extremely true and a really mm-hmm. important point to make. You know, people used to think that books were going to rot your brain yeah, and that like television and yeah. well, no, no people used to think when books came along, it was like the kids just want to read books. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to rot your brain. They're not going to listen to their elders anymore. And like writing down a language really does change it. Um, when you look at like the differences between old English and our modern English, when we started becoming, when it started becoming more of a literary language, the language changed completely. What I think is neat here is looking at Mappo's memories and how they kind of relate to at least the language that the book, in the books that Akarium is reading. Mm-hmm. So he remembers, he remembers walking to a meeting that changed his life where he was escorting his elders to a meeting with hooded figures who held twisted staffs, but they were human, mm-hmm. but they were ageless, the nameless ones. And that, mm-hmm. and they asked him what, what he could learn 
of patience. And then the book that Akarium is reading has that twisted staff on the spine of it. On the bind, yeah, the binding, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it has something to do with with however Mappo ended up in the situation that he's in. Um, but I love the little teases um, that we get of his memories. Yeah, and this sort of section just kind of ends there. It ends on those sort of teases of his memory, you know, leading us to look forward to reading more. But but this particular section doesn't end on like, you know, any big, it's, it's chapter three, we wouldn't expect it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just sort of where it ends. The only other note I have is that Mapotrell very much during this conversation is like, we need to leave. This place is dangerous. Yeah. And I'm totally with him. And and um, Ikarium is like, yeah, but these books, like, damn books, though. Damn books, you know? <laughs> and who would want to leave a library that, by the way, conveniently located in the kitchen, you don't even have to walk down the hall to get a snack. Some people say that's terrible. I say it's genius. Um, I also can't help but think that this is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek poke at all the other fantasy novels that just throw around libraries and books willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. Like, how many series are there out there where, like, the protagonist, you know, grows up in, like, a dirt shack raking dirt, mm-hmm. but, like, he goes to the city and there's a library, you know, that is 450,000 square feet and has books about everything uh-huh. and, and you know known to man in it and how unrealistic is it <laughs> well that's a good point and, and like we've often said you know Stephen erickson is, a, is an archaeologist like mm-hmm. i came from like a sociological archaeological background and would probably know something like that like i felt like it was a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek poking fun at the typical treatment of fantasy libraries mm-hmm. it's like this this fantasy library by the way looks like it's a pile of books in boxes shoved away in a rotting damp corner in the kitchen in the kitchen yeah (laughs) that's the library yeah (laughs) contrast that with oh i don't know the library in the beginning of the way of kings right where you have to take like you have to like fly to get to get to the top of it like they had to invent the elevator so they could (laughs) store the books i've never you know i had never thought of that before but you're right so that's it. That's that's it. <laughs> that's the end of the section. I'm very much looking forward to reading the next section. I did read the first page of chapter four by accident because I forgot what chapters we were doing. And when I was taking notes, I started reading like I read like the like I said like the first two or three paragraphs of of uh, chapter four, and I was like, "What? This doesn't make any sense going on." <laughs> and then, I, oh, okay. So, but now I just have a taste of of that, and I want to move forward. So. Are you ready for listener interactions? Yes, indeed. Outstanding. Let me just refresh my page. All right, Christian Prater says, favorite and least favorite characters and plot threads so far. Uh, that's a lot to that question. There's a, there's, yes. a, there's a whole chart that's already building in my brain. <laughs> so favorite and least favorite character, go. Favorite character so far is Fellison. Even though her plot, I, her plot, her character arc at this point is not my favorite. Mm-hmm. God, there are so many least favorite. It's really hard <laughs> to pick one. There's a lot of least favorites in this section. At this point in the story, you really hate Tavore. 
but yeah, yeah, you know. All right, my favorite. I'm gonna go with Fiddler. Oh, Fiddler, yeah. I'm gonna go with Fiddler right now. Least favorite is that dude that almost got stabbed by uh, Caleb. I can never remember his name. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Favorite plot thread so far. I guess I also have to say the Otateral Mines. Yeah, I mean, that's terrible. It's very hard to read. Yeah. Um, Least favorite plot thread. Uh, I think that Calum's is the most boring to me at this point. Uh, That's fair. I mean, it's not a criticism. It just hasn't really gone anywhere yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see it building up, but... Uh, all right, Morgan Shepard says, nothing Malazan-related, but how are the Duke and Duchess doing? Everything good in the kingdom? I mean, 18 months into the pandemic, we're... <laughs> how good is anybody right now? How good now? is anybody doing? We're, we're hanging in there. We're, we're hanging in there. We're doing the best we can. We are. We have a lot to be grateful for. Um, Billy Roll says, are you finding this book easier or harder to digest than Garden's? See, I can only reflect upon Gardens of the Moon knowing what I already know. Mm-hmm. I would say I feel like this is more confusing at this point mm-hmm. than Gardens was, but I don't really feel like totally lost. Right. So I guess I would say this is a little harder to digest. Jan Clifford Godfrey says, finally, you get to enjoy the wondrous Poost. Who would win in a fight between Crop and Poost? <sighs> I mean, it would be, it would be nothing but pratfalls. <laughs> so, I think, I think nobody loses. I think we're all winners in a fight between <laughs> Crop and Poost. Jan also says, "Do you think Fiddler and Callum will meet again?" I'm gonna say yes. I could make an argument either way, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say yes. Theo Graham Brown. <laughs> says the readers are enjoying a layered and complex political story. Steven Erickson says, dude's got a dick so big it hurts her down there. <laughs> Basically, he says, what the hell is up with that? Which I hell, believe man? you commented on. <laughs> Beneth's junk. What's up with Beneth's junk? I mean, I guess that's also part of reality. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It seems like an odd place to put it, though. <laughs> that could be taken one of several ways. <laughs> Jenny Young says, why the hell is the library in the kitchen? I I'm mean, sorry. Uh, you listeners are right that. on the same wavelength as all of us. <laughs> I've already answered that. So I can get a snack. Brian McClure says, is it just me or is the world building better and the characters already more interesting in this book than in the first? Huh. I... I don't know, because, like, learning about Tattersail and, you know, the mad possessed mm-hmm. puppet, I mean, mm-hmm. that was also pretty pretty bonkers as well. I, I would have to say one of the things that I got, I thought would happen in this book, based on comments you made, you know, is I would get in here and it would be so many new characters that I would be like, what the hell, I don't care mm-hmm. about any of this. You know, I want to get back to characters I know, and I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and like even like even you know books and series that I've really, really, absolutely loved. I remember you know the first time I read um, a Feast for Crows, 
uh, with you know from George R. R. Martin. It was very, it was a lot of that. Who who are these people? I don't care about these people. I want to go back to the mm-hmm. you know the people I care about. Uh, now, having said that, I love that book. Right now, but I was expecting that sort of feeling, and I—that's not what I'm getting. I'm I'm rolling right along. I think he keeps just enough characters that you know, or that the characters have connections to other people you know, mm-hmm. that it keeps it keeps it interesting. You know, and I think for me, my first time through this book, especially, well, one of the things that really hooked me into Gardens of the Moon was Tattersail and having this. Um, you know, this powerful female character who was, you know, a middle-aged woman, well, very old woman, actually, was what really hooked me. And, you know, then we have this book where we're now uh, three chapters in and the only female character we have so far is, you know, a teenager who's being gang raped, you know? So it's like there, there's that, that powerful female figure Mm -hmm. for me was like missing. And the fact that Tattersail's, character ended on said that such a fascinating intriguing you know i just got reincarnated and i'm now like 10 years old like finding wanting to find out what's going to happen with yeah, that yeah, for sure was like so for me i think when i started this book and i was like oh my gosh i'm three chapters in like what this is what i want to know about and it you know well it was frustrating no I, i'm with you and i mean again only three chapters in at this point but Absalar around yes nobody's paying any attention yeah no dialogue and that's frustrating yeah. Uh, Matt Hargreaves says, who do you think Mappo is protecting? Ikarium from the world or the world from Ikarium? Dun, dun, dun. I, I mean, it It seems like the the latter that he's trying to protect us from Ikarium. That's my take. He also says, oh, this is a good point. How do we feel about getting to see this seventh army preparing for its trek across the desert, you know, this all this drama through the point of view of Duker the historian rather than through what the point of view of one of the main officers or even a soldier. Yeah, which is of course a contrast to, you know, our experience in the last book where it was very much sort of on the ground level of mm-hmm. you know, of what's happening. Not even really a point that I thought about until you bring it up. So a good point to raise. I think one of the one of the observations there is that even with all of that in the last book in Gardens of the Moon, there's very little like actual like scenes from the fighting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you have the big fight in the beginning um, with the at the siege of Pale, mm-hmm. and then beyond that, you have you know little skirmishes and things. But even though you're looking getting things from the perspective of Peron and Whiskey Jack and Fiddler and and all these other people, you're you're not like actively in the battle because kind of the big battles have ended. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's probably why I didn't make as much of a notice. Um, but I also I like the concept of Duke or the historian uh, as one of the characters who is you know one of our perspective characters. It reminds me greatly of the protagonist from uh, the Black Company. Mm-hmm. who the main protagonist in those books is also a, a, a historian who follows the army around. Well, so, and it's it's an interesting commentary on the importance of like what a non-military perspective brings to mm-hmm. um, situations like this. You know, Duker's the only one who's kind of being like, hey, maybe we should figure out what these weird handprints are kind of thing. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, that's a really good point. Um, how do you feel about the transition between deadly God-possessed Sari to the now innocent yet very confused Absalar? Absalar's still one of the more compelling characters in the in the series. Mm-hmm. I mean, for so many reasons. But at this point, where we are right now at the end of chapter three, uh, we're not really getting... As we just mentioned, we're getting nothing from her perspective, no sort of dialogue with her. So it's not, I feel like it's not a really a, a good place to sort of ask the opinion about that character. Mm-hmm. Um, not through any fault of Matt Hargraves, but, mm-hmm. but you know, kind of based on what we know, I, I think the character is almost more interesting to me now mm-hmm. because you, because you have the sort of potential of, could she switch back at any time mm-hmm. and, or could she potentially harness those skills without the evil influence of, you know, being possessed and what would that mean? So it seems like there's a lot more, you know, variables uh, or p- a lot more paths that that could potentially take than, than in the past. Uh, Theo Graham Brown says, you guys posted a Twitter pic that looked like you were attending some kind of convention. How was it? Or was that for the other podcast? Uh, the things that happen on the other podcast are completely fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They're entirely wholesome. <laughs> so we took our kids to Oticon. If you're I'm so sure some of you are familiar with it. Um. We uh, we weren't attending as the Duke and Duchess, but more as lame non-anime fan parents who uh, we thought it would embarrass our kids to write the Duke and Duchess on our name tags, and it did. Baha. Glorious. No, we, no. Were, we were very much chaperones. That's yes. <laughs> our, our role there was a chaperone. Like, no, um, it was. But it, it was. It was an amazing time. Uh, I mean, anime is not our fandom, but. It was it was fun. It was a a, a well put on convention. It's amazing. The cosplays there were just yeah. amazing. Amazing and, um, cosplays was really well put together. I, I have to say, the folks, you know, if if anybody you know can get word back to the powers that be at Oticon, <laughs> <laughs> like really do a well, like a great job of running this convention. That is huge, uh, really awesome in terms of of the uh, stuff that they are able to put together also that feels safe mm-hmm. for, cause we took children as young as 10 mm-hmm. to this convention. So I really have to say, I think they do a phenomenal job, but also to your point, like I dipped my toe in the anime pool and I had no earthly concept of anything that was going on. No, when got there. no, I mean, we really completely out of my element. We we host a a, a local an anime fan. I, I'm told it's re- it's nerdy to call it a club. It's dorky. Mom, what, don't call it a club. What? what come on. What, who are we trying to kid? It's a <laughs> it's As a fan club for teens podcast. in our come area who, like our children, are fans. So we went down with the entire this gaggle of children and uh it was a great time um for them and for us <laughs> we got to watch and, them have a great and we time. chaperoned yeah. <laughs> so that's the story of our convention adventures eric allgaier says why do you think erickson is keeping Icarium's lineage a deliberate mystery what are your craziest theories on who his parents are and if we already answered that can we can can we debate whether the name Coltane sounds like a jazz improv malt <laughs> liquor? 
definitely does. Have a smooth, mm. cool glass of Coltane. <laughs> what do you think? Acarium, who do you... I, I just, I want to, I want to talk about Coltane <laughs> and the jazz improv inspired malt liquor. I can just tell you from experience that jazz improv and malt liquor don't mix. <laughs> They, yeah, and unless unless what you're trying to focus on is the notes that you don't play, because mm-hmm. there'll be a lot of them. <laughs> I I really I hear the question, and I know so little that I can't even begin to make an intelligent argument at it. Mm-hmm. So I just can't even begin to address. I don't. I know one other Jagu, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he blew up in the last book. So. Uh, it was. It was actually. It was pointed out by a listener previously. Acarium is not the same race as. He's not a Jagu. He's a Jag. I hear different that different from the Jagu tyrant that we met. I hear that, and I definitely. Just put think a pin th- in that. I just I want to say that I definitely think the person, and I don't. I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was who who put that argument out there. They definitely know more about this than I do. And at the same point in time, I read even in this section where they called him half Jagu and Jag in the mm-hmm. same paragraph. Yeah. So I'm not like that's not helping me to feel more settled in my opinion, right? <laughs> like because even the. Even the book seems to contradict that. Like I don't. Well, it's a. It's just. It's a hat. It's a human jagu mix. Yeah, I think that part is clear. Yes. But but uh, my point there being the only jagu that I know yes. is dead. Yes. And it doesn't. You know. I guess. And then that leads me then to be my only potential guess. Right. Would be that he's the half son of the jagu tyrant. Mm-hmm. And I don't. You don't know. He could be. He could be. I'm going to say if I have to play that dude or the field, I'm going to play the field. <laughs> I don't know. So, Johan Christensen says, question for Liz. How does it feel to watch Chad read Deadhouse Gates knowing full well what it's going to do to him emotionally? And see, I don't like how that question ended. It's glorious. I don't Is like, that bad? I don't Does like, that make me a bad like person? I don't that question's going. <laughs> That makes me. I don't we, know. It's it is it it does worry me a little that we've we've been rewatching Doctor I, I Who. Knew, I knew you. I knew where you were going. <laughs> of course, I'm going to tell this. We've if been, you weren't going to say it, I was. So <laughs> we were, I'll, I'll let you. We're rewatching Doctor Who with our youngest, and it's wonderful because uh, she's never seen it before. So we're but we got to Silence in the Library, and you and I both bawled our eyes out at Rivers. <laughs> And she was like, "Are you okay? Are you okay? What is going to? Because that I, is, I don't know if we're in a good place to be reading. To be this yeah, right. To series <laughs> might not be emotionally prepared for what's going to happen. Uh, I feel like there will be time to recover between now and then. We'll be all right." <laughs> uh, Jan Go- Jan Clifford Godfrey says, "Do you think turns things turns things turn out well for Phyllis? And- we're at the end of the podcast. You you don't have to apologize." <laughs> uh, so I'm going to say yes. I mean, I am i don't know if good or well is the right term, but I mean, I do think she's going to escape the situation. 
And my only reason for saying that, I got two reasons for saying that. One, it just seems to me like she's going to manage to escape or get, she's going to figure out what's going on with Hebrick and Bauden and is going to manage to tag along somehow or follow them or something. So I, so there's that. But the other part of it is that we know from Snapters in the other book that she becomes some sort of historical figure or, or mm-hmm. historian or writer, and she mm-hmm. publishes books that get referenced. So she hasn't written them beforehand. So I have to believe that she somehow makes her out of, out of this, you know, in order to end up in that situation. It's possible she's written them. It's possible she's done some historical writing. I have to I have to double check that. She's only 16. Yeah, I have to double check that. I'm going to guess the answer to that question is that she hasn't. And our last question comes from Brian McClure who says, "How much do you despise Felison's sister Tavora?" It's strange that I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about her. Mm-hmm. I guess because so far I've had two instances with her character, and she just seems like kind of cartoonishly powerful mm-hmm. or power seeking, power hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten absolutely zero from her perspective, unlike you know Lorne, the adjunct, right? And you know you you kind of ended you know with Lorne's death with her being at least a somewhat sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be very difficult. It would be a Jamie Lannister type of character twist to kind of pull Tavora out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have as I don't really have as strong and negative feelings as maybe I should. Right. I guess that's my take. All right. Let's hear those predictions. All right, prediction time. Okay, so I have a lot of predictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, I think on the weight of how bad I think the predictions are, I just had to put a lot of them out there. Mm-hmm. So um, first one is that Hebrick and Bodden are planning to escape, and I believe that they are planning to leave Felison behind. Mm-hmm. I think they're telling her, or they're not telling her, rather, what they're doing because they don't trust her. Right. Uh, but I think at the end, they will end up taking her at the final moment, or she'll end up following them. So that's that's my prediction there. Um, I also think that what's going to happen is the lake is going to get low enough that there's going to be a cave. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my take at why they're watching the lake. Now, how in the world they would one be making that happen somehow mm-hmm. and two if the lake got low and it opened up the mouth of a cave why wouldn't everybody know about like i haven't right i haven't figured that that far out but it's the only thing i can think of um i do think hebrick dies mm-hmm. i don't think he survives the book i think the dosi will revolt i really don't think that's much of a, of a surprise mm-hmm. uh i do also believe that the spirit walker's song is going to be something that's going to show up again in future books. I don't think it's going to have much to do with the rest of this book. I could mm-hmm. be wrong, um, but I don't. But I think it's going to show up in future books. This one's a little bit. This one's a little bit of a a strange one. But when they had the um, question about uh, Crocus's Bokoral, mm-hmm. uh, who you know. It's like, why is he attached to me? I'm no mage. Or mm-hmm. why does he like, I think it was Fiddler who said, why does he follow me around? I'm no mage. Um, I think Fiddler is a mage. 
I just think he doesn't realize it. Okay. Um, and I believe that's sort of also hinted at in the last book when he's reading, you know, he's playing with a deck of dragons and like right. using it to influence or at least interpret things and doesn't know that it, that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. But I definitely believe he is a mage. Now, the problem, it would also make sense as to why Moby liked Fiddler so much, why he was sort of instantly drawn to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what potentially contradicts it is why he just disappeared. Yeah. I mean, there's a million other reasons why he could have disappeared. Right. Um, but my prediction is that Fiddler's a mage. Cool. I think Trell b- betrays Icarium. Mm, okay. You know, I think his in- I don't think he is like villainously setting out to oppose him, mm-hmm. but I think in some way he will betray or oppose him at the end. And I also think that uh, Iskarl Pust put those books in the library on purpose, mm-hmm. that he's trying to draw something out of Acarium. Mm. So I, I think that's, I don't think that's an accident. Them's all my predictions. I like them. You got anything else? No. All right, so next time, chapters four and five? Yes. Four and five, all right. And you can find us online on Twitter at the DND Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. The place where we do most of our interaction uh, is on Facebook at the group, excuse me, at the Duke and Duchess Podcast group. So you just search that up in the Facebook page. One thing I do want to point out, because I think this is confusing to people, there is a Duke and Duchess Podcast page Mm -hmm. that we created when we first started that we don't do jack all on because we learned early on that it doesn't really allow you to do good interaction with people so we created the group and that's really where people are hanging out right so if you ping us on the on the page we'll probably respond to you but if you want to hang out with the cool folk right you got to come there uh and then we have a bunch of other social media that we just don't pay as much attention to because we just don't have as much time but (laughs) we have good stuff on goodreads and uh on Reddit, as well as Instagram, and you can just search for us by looking for the Duke and Duchess podcast or the Duke and Duchess book club. Also, I'll ask, if you listen to us on Spotify, let me know, because strangely, we've lost all of our metrics on Spotify, so I don't, I no longer have any sense of like what percentage of our listeners are coming from Spotify, but I know that a lot of folks are switching over to Spotify for podcasts. So just sort of curious if you're listening, to what are you listening to us on, particularly if you're listening to us on Spotify. And that's enough out of me. Got anything else? Nope. Good night, everybody. Good night. Iskarl Pust shows up on the back of a donkey that is not a donkey. And he is weird as hell. Sorry, I found a Newsweek article that talks about the genetic mutation behind shovel teeth and how 
It's probably why Native Americans were able to survive the walk over the Bering Land Strait. Sorry. Well, I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm back. File that one away. <laughs> I will just talk to you about that later. I'm sorry. I got distracted. This is just future. That's future material. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. I'm ready to talk about Escarl Poost. Oh, so what did you think about Escarl Poost? I just told you what I thought of him. Shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. I love you and you're interesting. Um, okay. Cool. So, yeah, Escarl Poost. No, no, no. No, it's good. I mean, it's up to you. If you can think you can piece something together out of this. I'm, sh- I'm going to just leave it disaster go. Disaster. I'm just going to leave it go. <laughs> okay. Peek behind the tent. Yes. Escarl Poost is uh, kind of the... The Krupp figure, 